The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockhead, quit gulping down that cup of hot steamy jive. Never mind. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 332 with guest Ted Neward, recorded live Thursday, March 21st, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik. Combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says... Veni vidi bb. I came, I saw, I coded. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell's out there. This is your Thursday show. Hi, Richard. Hello, sir. Having fun. No rest for the wicked. It is nice and warm out here in New England today. It, I don't, you know, when I say warm, I mean 50. Above freezing. <laughs> I mean 50 Fahrenheit. <laughs> That's warm. That's walking weather. Yeah. Finally, that warm. Finally, I can get out there and do a little walking. Nice. Because, you know, when it's really cold and windy. By the way, State Street is the windiest street in New London. Nice. Yeah, of course. Exactly where you are. It's right between the courthouse, the top of the hill, and then the river. It's just whoosh big funnel anyway let's get right into better no framework better no framework of course this is where uh we don't you don't consider it training we're just pointing out different classes and features in the dotnet framework we do two shows a a week so over the course of a year or two you listen to the show hey you might learn a few things and uh today's uh today you know what i i'll probably mention this again at a later time but um I started out doing namespaces and classes and, and all that kind of stuff. Now I want to sort of dig into some of the some of the members on some of these classes because because um, there's a lot of gold here. And uh, the system string, okay, 
The system string has a compare method, which is a static method or a shared method for you VB programmers. And basically, it compares two strings and returns an int 32. And if the value is less than 0, then string A is less than string B. If the value is 0, then string A equals string B. And if it's greater than 0, string A is greater than string B. And this is really good to use because there is an option in Visual Basic anyway called option compare. When you check two strings to see if one equals another, uh, if option compare is, I think, on, then it will ignore case. Cool. So, you know, it's really for text. If yeah, real string on. comparisons, the way that the real word comparisons. Word comparisons, right. But if, uh, but if not, it won't ignore case. So, so you get some flexibility with this. And uh, also, it, it's not language specific. It's in the framework. It's a good way to compare strings. You know That's exactly cool. what you're getting. Yeah. Um, by the way, the uh, comparison is performed using word sort rules. And for more information about word, string, and ordinal sorts, which is, I think, what we were talking about, see system globalization compare options. So there you go. System.string.compare. Nice. So uh, you have a interesting email for us today. I, I do indeed. After some encouraging... Uh, let me just start off at the top here. After hearing your April Fool's pranks, I thought you might appreciate these two that I had success with, though they are not necessarily restricted to April 1st. In fact, they require more than a day to execute. I think number we one, should just paper stick bandit. with number one. You might just stick with <laughs> yeah, one? I don't think we should go to number two, if you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there were two. I'm going to leave the second one out. Just do number the one. second one's a little gross, yeah, actually. Yeah, number two gets a little graphic. So number one, the paper bandit. Several months ago, I sat next to a woman that had an HP laser printer on her desk that pulls the paper from the tray that sits in front. One day, I started taking the paper from the front tray and put it up on top of the printer when she left her desk to make it look like the paper fed through the printer all by itself. When she returned, she seemed perplexed, but did not comment. I waited a day or two and repeated the trick. I kept doing this off and on for several months. The frequency depending on, <laughs> on my mood. She had the tech guys over trying to figure out why the printer was printing blank pages by itself. And they were equally confused. But wait, this gets better. <laughs> After a great. while, I went to phase two, taking the letter-sized paper off the tray and putting legal-sized paper <laughs> on top. I watched as the tech guy explained to her that the printer cannot stretch the paper and that she must have made a mistake. <laughs> Life was good. Her printer problem has now been dormant for a few months now, but who knows when it will return. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's brilliant. Brilliant. And the fact that, you know, people think it's magic, you know, yeah. it's like what nobody ever thinks someone is messing with my mind. Yeah. Someone's just fooling around here. And that email's from Chris Burgess. Chris, you got yourself a mug. Genius. Genius. Absolutely. I am in deference to you, my friend. Hey, um, before we uh before we introduce Ted, uh I have a message here from our friends at Infusion Development. You know Infusion, our friends oh, in yeah. New York, Greg Brill and all that. And I'm just gonna read it as is. Uh, I guess they're moving into Dubai. They have an office in Dubai, and they want people there. So he says, uh, investment banks, government agencies, and even royalty turn to Infusion Development for sophisticated software solutions. Now we're turning to you. 
move to Dubai and start our newest office. Richard's thinking, hmm. I've been to Dubai. <laughs> I like this. I have been to Dubai. Build solutions that influence world markets, city infrastructures, and private enterprise. Your work will make a difference in one of the largest technology markets in the world. Dubai is decadence, complete with the world's largest structures, indoor ski hills, and Earth's only six-star hotel, not to mention tax-free living. Really? Tax-free really? living? Yeah. Oh, my God. We'll make your relocation to Dubai as simple as possible. We also offer tour programs in London and New York, which is what we talked about before the New York tour. And we're always looking for strong .NET consultants interested in working with emerging technologies. Email a Richardson at Infusion.com or visit the Infusion website at Infusion.com for more information. I'm really curious to see how many people bite at this. And let me tell you, for folks who, who are thinking Dubai... It's one of the most amazing places you can live. It's uh, it's very westernized, yet it is in in you know the Middle East. No two ways about it. Uh, it's insanely hot in the summertime. People basically stay indoors. the The Arabian Sea, which is what they call it on the Dubai side, if you're on the other that's side, the eastern, they call it that's the, the Persian eastern Gulf. side, right? What's that? Is that the eastern side? That's the southern side. Right, but the sea is to the east, is what I mean. What's that? The sea is to the east. Is that well? Right? The sea, well, it's it's actually sort of to the west. To but, the west, though. Yeah, right. uh, you're, you're. But it's really there's the south coast, which is sort of like where they call it the Arabian Sea, and on the north coast in Iran, they call it the Persian Gulf. Mm, okay, but it's the same chunk of water. It's very warm. It's good, crazy warm. Good bandwidth warmer than there? the Caribbean. Good bandwidth there. Uh, internet connectivity off the hook. Really? And, and access to just some amazing places. Dubai is a major hub. There's a direct flight from Dubai to New York. Really? Yeah. So, or to London or to Singapore, whichever way you want to go. So Dude, you really let, are. Let's you and me move there, man. Yeah. Screw this crap. <laughs> Believe me, there was a point where I was seriously considering it. And, uh, definitely talk to your accountant. The, the, it's an interesting experience, but to be a non-resident citizen to become an expat you got to commit a couple of years to it you get to that sort of tax-free state but uh, it can for somebody who's looking for an adventure this is an adventure well it's my pleasure to bring back to the show ted neward uh an old friend of ours he's uh, an independent consultant specializing in high-scale enterprise systems working with clients ranging in size from fortune 500 corporations to small 10-person shops he is an authority in Java and .NET technologies, particularly in the areas of Java and .NET integration, both in-process and via integration tools like web services, back-end enterprise software systems, and virtual machine execution engine plumbing. Uh, Ted's the author and co-author of several books, including Effective Enterprise Java, C-Sharp in a Nutshell, SSCLI Essentials, server-based Java programming, and a contributor to several technology journals. Ted's also a Microsoft MVP, architect, BEA technical director, Ineta speaker, plural site instructor, frequent conference speaker, and a member of various Java JSRs. He lives in the Pacific Northwest with his wife, two sons, and eight PCs. Is that last part true? Yes. Only eight? Yes, eight PCs? Well, let's see. Oh, no, wait. There's an old laptop hiding under the corner there. Okay, it should be nine. Uh, it should be nine. Huh? Got to update that website. I'm feeling better about it now. Yeah, That's well. good. You know, you should have a dynamic uh, updating thing. So anytime you bring home a new PC, boing, that number just changes. 
<laughs> Let's work on that, Ted. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe a little a little uh, plug-and-play thing, you know, sort of a network scanner, new devices come in, and boink, my, my bio just auto-updates. Yeah, let's know? just and, have an inventory right in your bio there. How have you been, man? I haven't talked to you in, it seems like, ages. Oh, I've been, I've been good. I've been good. A little busy. Um, you know, changing, uh, changing direction is, uh, is, is always a little bit, uh, fun. I've been doing a lot, you know, what, what the bio doesn't say is I've been doing a lot recently with, with languages, but you know, I, I gotta say guys, I, I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little hurt. I'm a little hurt at, at the two of you. Well, you know, I mean, as, as your listeners know, you know, we, re- you, you record these, uh, you know, ahead of time, a little bit, you know, ahead of time. And so I just listened to the episode. With your brother in it. Oh, cool! Yeah, because right? that just came out yesterday, right? And 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 I listened to it, and I'm thinking they're talking Java, and then I'm thinking they're talking Java without me. <laughs> and I'm hurt. I mean, that, that gets me right here, you know. And, and, <laughs> oh, and, and oh, then, oh! And then and then just to top it all off, you're talking smack about Java without me. <laughs> no, we did you're not talk things, smack about Java. You're saying things that are just not quite right about Java. What did you know? I say? And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, it's not what you said. It's, it's like the way you said it, you know? Oh, no. like, you know, oh man. It's kind of like when, when the girl looks at you and says, they just want to be friends, right? That's, that's like the kiss of death. Well, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I'm not a Java programmer, so I, I, I think there's an, a certain advantage of coming at Coming to the interview from the point of a pure .NET developer with asking the question, what is this all about? You know, it was a totally different level of conversation than you're used to having, which is really, really technical. We were really uh, addressing the noob, such as I am. Well, and, and you know, the, I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Your brother's a very nice guy. I mean, I like him. He's, you know, and it's, and it's, it's very nice to... Uh, um, you know, to hear, you know, sort of get that, that perspective from somebody who's using this stuff as opposed to someone, you know, cause the, the, the right. circles that I run in in the Java space are, are frequently the guys who are defining this stuff. And, you know, as you guys know from where you sit in the .NET world, those are two very, very different circles sometimes. Without yeah, a doubt. Um, Absolutely. You know, but, you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I wanted to sort of, zero in on right I'll, I'll leave the whole discussion about the orm stuff you know for for another day right but we already did that one yeah we did with orm and and you know i won and so everybody you know we now have that <laughs> is that so <laughs> is that so oh, i see now i think i understand um, where you're coming from here we go but I mean, for example, you know, one of the things, um, you know, one of the things that, that, that struck me as I was listening to this conversation is you guys were talking a little bit about the tools, right? You were talking about right. how, uh, uh, Jay is, is, you know, all command line, no IDE. And you were talking specifically about, you know, the, how in the Java space, we don't have much in the way of GUI builder tools, right? We don't have the drag and drop thing like we do in, in Visual Studio. You know, you've got a palette of controls and you just pull it over and voila, instant application. And the .NET developer would probably look at that and go, oh, you know, these Java guys, right? They're sitting around in caves banging rocks together and going, ook, good, ook, made line of code today, ook, good. Chipping it out of the rock. 
Exactly. And, and I mean, one of the uh, things, you know, what, what, what dot net guys frequently don't understand is that the Java community is about five to seven years ahead of the dot net community in terms of its evolution. Yep. Right. Which is not to say that we're better. Right. I mean, in this particular case, I'm putting on my Java hat. So I'm going to say we, but you know, there, there've been certain things that the Java community has, has learned over time that the .NET community is, is, you know, figuring out. Sure. Um, and you know, one of the things, for example, the Java community has a rich history now of that the .NET community is beginning to appreciate is this notion of refactoring tools. You know, the idea of the IDE being able to reach into your code and recognize certain constructs and go, hey, you know, kind of looks like you want to do this. Let me give you a menu item that lets you, you know, extract an interface here because you want to abstract something out. You want do to they have a paperclip, too? Do they have a paperclip? No. <laughs> it looks like you're we... trying to build a class module. Let me yeah, help you with that. Yeah. Well, see, we, we used to have something like that, but uh, James Gosling has actually worked on, you know, moved on to other things, so we don't need him around anymore. <laughs> well, you know, it is it is good that you brought that up. I mean, we were having a conversation about Jay's experience, which is obviously different than a lot of Java developers' experience. Right. Right. And we certainly aren't a Java show, so we don't usually interview Java developers. And right. In fact, right, I right, think right. you're the only one other than Jay that we've ever talked to, so... No, 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 that's not true. Oh, that's not Actually, true. No, we've had Bruce on, and we've had yeah, a couple yeah. other people, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just, you know, the wittiest and most handsome and most ah, charming. Ah, yeah, nice, yeah. Which comes over, over radio. Yeah, Absolutely. Right, exactly. Especially right. that handsome you know, part. Right, right. So, I mean, if, 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 you know, I mean, for starters, your brother's experience is very different from a lot of the Java folks in that he spent a lot more time in terms of the GUI space than where, you know, there are a whole bunch of Java developers out there who have never written a GUI-based application ever. Sure. sure. And, you know, there are Java guys who'd be going, yeah, Swing, SWT, I don't get it. I, I don't understand what's going on there. Yeah, what's any of that stuff uh, for? Yeah, you know, I mean, they kind of, sort of know a little bit, but they're so wrapped up in the whole browser-based thing. You know, one of the, one of the conferences I do in, in that space um is called the No Flop Just Stuff Symposium. And, you know, we hold these shows like, you know, 30 times a year all over the North American continent. And one of the things we do during the speaker panel on Sunday is we, we take a poll of the developers. So we say, you know, how many of you are building, you know, swing apps and like one hand out of 250 will mm -hmm. go up. Yeah. You know, so Jay's already in pretty rarefied atmosphere. Well, and, and and later in the interview, he said that now he's sort of migrating to the server side just because right. that's you know he knows that stuff more than a lot of other people at the company. Right. So, right. and and also you know you got to give me a little credit for for uh, you know when he did say you know I looked at C sharp and Java and they look identical, you know they seem to be pretty much identical, and and I put in there uh, as a language, right? Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. well. The interesting thing is, you know, for the, for the Java developer coming over to C sharp or for the C sharp developer coming over to Java, I mean, you know, as you pointed out, C sharp was, I mean, it's, it's part of the Algol family of languages, yeah. right? They use curly braces and semicolons and so forth. And that's deliberate. I mean, Java was written the way it was to try to attract the C++ programmer 
And C Sharp was arguably written to be attractive to both the C++ programmer and the Java programmer. And to some extent, the VB programmer. Um, yeah, okay, you can think that if you want. To some extent. Nice. That's why I said to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it, what, what happened in VB is they just sort of twisted your language around yet again in order to sort of fit the CLR. That's all right. We're used to being smacked around. But it's not even being smacked around. I mean, they just kind of redefined your entire language. I mean, just, yeah, okay, now we're objects, and you get implementation inheritance, which were things that, you know, I know the VB community was asking about for years. The story of VB and BASIC is always a story of bolted-on features. I mean, going yeah. back to Quick Basic, going back to Basic W and GW Basic, it always has been the story of bolted on, bolted on, bolted on. It was never architect. Didn't start out to be architecturally sound, but but the jump from VB6 to VB.net, you know, when that, especially in those early days, it was safe to say VB.net had more in common with C Sharp than it had with VB6. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Conceptually, I mean, syntactically, I mean, syntactically you know, what was the old joke yeah. that, that, you know, I think you guys made it at one point too, you know, VB.net is basically C sharp that's been run through like a preprocessor to replace the curly braces with begin and end and to remove the semicolons and boom, there you go. I never said that. <laughs> you never said that? <laughs> no, that wasn't I'm me. I'm sure I heard you say that at least once. No, not me. Oh. Anyway, but, but, you know, I mean, overall, I think, you know, if, if, if the Java community is interested, there's certainly a lot that they can learn from what's going on in the Java community, both, sure. you know, good things and bad things. I mean, that was one of the things that we saw both languages, both environments were developing their generics implementations at the same time. And quite frankly, .NET got it right and Java got it wrong because generics in Java are only skin deep. Yep. When I say a list of T in Java, what the compiler turns it into is a list of objects. And so we lose all that type safety after the code's been compiled. .NET carries it all the way through, which is really cool. I learned about that by uh, talking to Venkat on DNR TV. He really showed me the difference between generics and Java and .NET. Quite different. Oh, yeah. Venkat and I talk a lot on the NoFluff tour, and one of the fun jokes was to say, okay, you walk up to some unsuspecting attendee and, and say, okay, I want you to walk over to, to Venkat and say, hey, Venkat, what do you think of generics? Because I think they're cool. And just watch, you know, vank it, you know, just sort of explode. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and off he goes. Yeah, exactly. It was just, it was always, it was always good for, for a rant or two. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zune. So speaking of languages, which we are, let's, yeah. let's just introduce this topic, which is the plethora of languages that we seem to be bombarded with like never before in programming history. 
Um, programming history class was about the only time that we would hear about such languages. I, I know I've been hearing about Lisp ever since I've got into computers and people speak about Lisp with reverence and awe, you know, about, uh, but, but still we don't have Lisp.net, do we? I mean, we have F sharp, um, and we have some other things that, some more dynamic things, but what, what do you make of this? Uh, I mean, is it just because the .NET framework is so language agnostic that we see all these things happening, or is it does it go beyond .NET? Is it is the language revolution all over all over all technologies? Well, um, gosh, I mean, gee, you just set me up to like lecture for an hour and a half without you ever having to say anything else. That's my job, man. Yeah, uh, we'll, uh, we'll be over there I'll getting t- a coffee. I'll, let I'll, us know when yeah, you're back. Exactly. Just let me know. Set <laughs> the headset down and, uh, you know, come back, check in every half an hour or so. Just make sure you keep your um, eyes on the road, listeners, okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, You know, I first got the inclination that this was happening when I started poking around Microsoft Research and saw them building language extensions for C-sharp and such on the research side that would just compile yeah. into Studio. And I just thought, wow, like what a great proof of the potential of the CLR and of Studio that we can basically have a research project that's deployable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, Eric Meyer, who is, you know, pretty well known now for some of the work that he's done with respect to Link. I mean, he built an entire language, he and a couple other guys at research who are not as well known, but equally important. Um, they created a language called C Omega, right? Right. Yeah. And C Omega was sort of the test bed for a lot of the ideas that ultimately filtered their way into link as well as a couple of ideas that didn't, but which are now, I mean, there were some concurrency constructs. Right. I was just going to say that Omega. the parallels yep. extensions came from there. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, P-Link is a different project being run by Joe Duffy, where where C Omega was going was, you know, talking about concurrency in terms of being able to reason about it at a slightly higher level. So saying, for example, I don't want this to happen unless the user has called this other thing as well, which they called chords, right? Like in music, and originally the name of that particular project was called Polyphonic C-Sharp. Right. Sort of continuing that musical theme. Yeah, and then we had a show with uh, uh, Nick Benton and Claudio Russo about Polyphonic C Sharp yeah. like last yep. year. That feature is available as a library called the Joins Library, which is available from MSR. And it, it basically gives you the chords feature, but just on top of stock vanilla sharp, right? It uses generics and delegates. Um, which I know you guys have been talking about a little bit in some of your, your show, uh, discussions. Um, the delegates feature is very, very powerful in .NET. And here they're using it basically to say, when this chord occurs, here's a block of code that, that should be run. And it makes a lot of your concurrency concerns, you know, ultimately just fall away. And you don't have to think about low level locks and which thread holds which monitor and all that kinds of stuff. You just say, look, when somebody calls this, wait, and they also calls that, and then, boom, I'm going to move on. So, you know, it's a very, very powerful, simpler way to think about concurrency, which is, you know, very, very cool. Well, I like the fact that we're driving this concurrency challenge, which we've been fighting for years, uh, oh, it's only into getting worse. plumbing. It's only getting worse. 
Well, absolutely. We got more cores. We got no more processing. We, there's more, even more reason than ever before to do more threads. It's just that I find inevitably when you code multiple threads, you get yourself into trouble. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. As a matter of fact, um, great book, even for the .NET guys, uh, is a Java book called Java Concurrency in Practice because the threading models between the two languages, between the two platforms are so similar. Brian Getz, who's a very, very smart guy, and a little-known fact about him, if you look at the base of his neck, it's usually hidden by his hair, but if you look at the base of his neck, there's a small plastic ring. And if you pull on it and let go, he says, concurrency is hard. You pull on it again, and he says, just don't do it. And Dude. You, this is not how to win friends and influence people, okay? <laughs> Let me just give you a few lessons in that. <laughs> Insulting well, people I mean, on the most popular .NET show no, no, is no, just no, no, no. not a I'm, good idea. I'm not insulting him. The funny thing is Brian would agree with me. I oh. mean, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's talking. I mean, this book that he wrote was the number one bestseller at Java One last year. Because it's, it's, a, it's something that everybody is discovering that concurrency is really, really hard, particularly because Java and C sharp make it really hard to think about concurrency because they're traditional imperative languages that say, if you want to think about concurrency, if you want to think about, you know, how these threads will interact, you have to think about that explicitly. You have to say to yourself, all right, now, hmm, if two threads come in here at the same time, what exactly will happen? And you have to do this over your entire code base. Yeah. I mean, every, just, every you know, procedure you're looking at, every chunk of code, what happens if two requests enter this at once? Exactly. What's going to happen? Exactly. And that's hard. I mean, you know, Brian is simply saying what most of us are afraid to admit out loud, which is to say, this stuff is hard. I mean, these are the kinds of things, you know, that, that even the most senior developers, you know, stay up at night going, oh, man, I'm just not positive that my code is correct. And the funny thing is, you know, I mean, you, you walk into a room full of developers and you say, how many of you write good code? And a bunch of them will put their hands up, you know, I mean, particularly if it's, a, you know, an upper echelon conference. And then you say, how many of you write completely guaranteed 100% thread safe code and like all of those hands will go back down. And then you say, how many of you think that thread safe code is good code? And a bunch of them will sort of look at each other and go, Oh crap, we walked into that one. And I mean, we know at a fundamental level, at a visceral level that, you know, we need to be thinking about this stuff, but you know, at 1130 at night, as you're trying to get code slammed out for the big release, Particularly if you want to build something, you know, on the web where you're going, where you know you're going to have concurrency concerns, it's really easy to go, yeah, we'll never run into that particular problem. So let's just move on. Let's just, you know, keep going. So do you think these, the, the functional language revolution portion of the re language revolution is addressing the, the core way that we write, uh, concurrent code? It's definitely a different way to think about code. Um, and that's going to be probably the hardest part about this whole space. You know, you mentioned earlier F-sharp. One of the big things about F-sharp is it being a functional object hybrid language. You know, you, you, you have to write your code a little bit differently. You have to think about your code a little bit differently. And there's some definite benefits to be gained there beyond just the concurrency. 
but you know, thinking that way is is really really difficult for programmers. Just like thinking the way that we think is actually really really hard for mathematicians, right? If you go, if you think back, you know, I know, I know, Carl, that you you said that you're not really an engineer like your brother is, but I'm sure you've been through math classes, right? Sure, you've been through like the algebra classes and all that stuff. Imagine a universe where you sit down for your first day of math class. And the teacher writes an equation on the board that says X equals X plus one. I mean, what that says from a mathematics perspective is that if X is equal to four, then four equals five. Right. If if you live in a universe where that is true, (laughs) then you either need to stop taking whatever it is you're taking (laughs) or you need to share a lot more. (laughs) Right. You need need to give me some of that. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the principal things we get out of functional languages. A lot of people sort of go, oh, functional languages, that's all about math. I don't do math. I don't care. The thing of it is, what a functional language says is if we sort of look at that mathematical property that says, hey, I can do substitution, then we can basically say, you know what, we can take certain operations and sort of hand them off to sub-processes, to other threads, if you will, and say, here, go calculate that because... I know that once you calculate that result, that will be applicable everywhere, which is where we get a tremendous amount of that parallelism. And that's the, the real principle that we're going after there is to say, let's, let's do a whole bunch of this stuff and break it down into smaller pieces and feed that off to one of the, you know, 16, 32, 64 CPUs that we're going to see over the next couple of, of Moore's Law cycles. Because right? Intel and AMD are not slowing down in terms of the transistors they put on. Right. The problem is just they can't get from one end of the chip to the other in a single clock cycle anymore. So they have to break it up into multiple cores if they want to get any benefit. Yeah. And that just makes the pressure for us to do a good concurrency greater and greater. The processors aren't getting faster. We backed off right. of four gigahertz. We've gone back down to around three. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, when you have all these cores, you can lower the speed of the cores so long as you're, you're uh, so long as the code to take advantage of those cores makes it all the way up into your application. Right, right. And to go back to your original question, Carl, you know, why are all these languages emerging now? A large part of that is because we, you know, both, the .NET space and the Java space, as well as, I mean, we're starting to see it in other spaces as well, this rise of the virtual machine technology, right? The, the rise of the execution engine to sort of abstract away certain niggling details is really important because it means now that, you know, guys like Eric Meyer and, and you know, uh, Claudio Russo and some of the other folks at Microsoft Research as well as people in the, the Java space like Martin Odersky, uh, Philip Wadler, et cetera, they can start applying some of what they've been doing in terms of thinking about these kinds of problems in the academic world and start to apply them. And the code that they produce out of their research compiler can drop directly into production because they don't have to worry about things like optimization or serialization or remoting or access to the database or any of that other stuff. They just have to worry about producing code for that particular ecosystem. Right. They focus on the language. Yeah, even Perl is getting this, right? They've been working for five years now on a Perl VM called Parrot, which is basically the same idea, constructed slightly differently, but basically it's the same idea 
let's abstract away some of the details of native code. And people are, you know, very actively working on different flavors of languages on top of the Perl VM, on top of Parrot. So, I mean, this is happening all across the board. And we're even getting to the point now where people are suggesting, you know, let's, our, our problem, you know, our problem domain, the, the subject that we work on is sufficiently difficult to suggest that if we want to really enable end users to be able to do stuff that, that we can't even begin to imagine right now, we need to give them some kind of tool, some kind of, of expressive tool, far more expressive than a traditional GUI, right? GUIs are great because they sort of, you know, limit what the user can do and make, you know, put it up there in a very sort of Microsoft Bob friendly way, right? <laughs> hey, this is what you can do today. But if we really want to enable emergent behavior and let the users do stuff that, that, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't even know that was a part of the business. Then what we need to do is give them something that's a lot more powerful, and a lot more flexible. And this is where we get into all that space about domain-specific languages and capturing certain things as first-class constructs. And this has been done successfully already. As a matter of fact, you know, I know you guys have been over in Europe recently, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, Tech Ed Barcelona last year, right, Richard? You were there? Yeah, Richard I was there. Oh, I think you were there, too. And I was there a year before. You were using a domain-specific language. You were using one of these custom languages without even realizing it. Because Ericsson built a language, what they called the Ericsson language or Erlang, that deals specifically with problems of massive scalability, like millions. I mean, we get scared if we start talking about spawning off a hundred of threads or so. These guys are talking about spawning millions of these things to be able to do with switching across their network. And it works. So you mean that about just by using your cell phone in Europe, you're using Erlang? Yeah. touching Erlang. Yeah. And I think actually Ericsson's network stretches over here into the States as well, but I'm not positive of that. I just know uh, a couple of weeks ago I was at QCon in London where Joel Armstrong, a creator of Erlang, stood up and said, how many of you have a mobile phone? And a bunch of people, of course, raised their hand and said, you've been using Erlang without even realizing it. So, I mean, this is, we're, we're starting to see you know, a real convergence again of, you know, the academic world, and the practitioner world, because up until this point, those two worlds have been dangerously separate from one another. Our industry, I think, is the only one I can think of where what the academics are doing is, is viewed somehow as not being, you know, applicable in some way. Maybe not right away, maybe like a couple of years from now, but they're not considered sort of the bleeding edge. They're considered this weird edge that, you know, real programmers don't bother with. Well, they're yeah, like they're off in in dreamland. We it's yeah. so disconnected from what we're actually doing, right? Yeah. And what that does, what that does, is it makes it very hard for the academics to get feedback about their ideas, their their principles, their languages, their tools, their whatever, in order to figure out what the next generation should look like, in order to figure out what works and what doesn't. I mean, you know, if you wrote a program and nobody used it, how can you know how to make it better, right? And now, because, you know, the academics didn't have time, energy, uh, in some cases, just flat-out awareness of how to make something production-ready, now they don't have to worry about that. Now they say, my compiler is going to emit Java bytecode, or my compiler is going to emit CIL, and voila, they're instantly a part of that world that 
more or less production ready. They don't have to worry about a whole bunch of those other niggling details. And we can start using it like C-Omega. We can start using it and going, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Or, oh my God, I can't believe. I mean, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but yeah, I'm never going to use this thing again. And they can carry that feedback back and think about, okay, so for the next generation, we're going to do something different here or there or someplace else. So, I mean, it's only get, it's only going to get worse from here, right? And by worse, I really mean better because now really anybody can start thinking about, you know, creating their own programming languages, whether just for research and fun or whether for, um, you know, practical, I want to try to create something that the company can actually use. And it's, you know, it's it's an interesting new day. What I find fascinating is you've got these domain-specific languages, you've got functional languages, you've got features of dynamic languages, like all these certain kind of categories of new languages, and they all seem to run just fine on in the CLR. Is there any form of language, any category that we haven't heard about yet that just doesn't work well in the CLR? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people said – um, about five or ten years ago, that dynamic languages would are were just going to fall apart on top of the CLR. As a matter of fact, you know the the now you know old hat story about Jim Huguenin, who wrote actually a Python for the JVM uh, language called Jython. Um, he actually got ready to write a paper for I think it was an Uppsala conference back in '03 or '02 or something like that basically describing how sucky the CLR was for dynamic languages. And so he sat down and he wrote an implementation of Python for the CLR, and it ran like faster than the native C code implementation of Python. And I mean, Jim frankly admits, you know, I had to turn around and change the title of my paper. I had to change the complete paper structure and topic and everything because you know, his premise going into it was based on what he'd heard, and it turned out that that premise was wrong. And Jim, of course, now works on Iron Python for Microsoft, et cetera, et cetera. The point being simply that I think in many cases, you know, we can look at it, we can reason and say, oh, well, I think language X will be terrible on this platform, the CLR, because it's, you know, intrinsically statically typed and object-oriented at its very core, blah, blah, blah. But realistically speaking, you know, the, the CLR is a very, very flexible piece of software. I mean, you know, Jim Miller, who was one of the CLR architects, tried to design it that way. He was thinking about dynamic languages as far back as 2000, because that's a personal, you know, pet favorite area of his. And he was thinking about this years before any of the rest of us, you know, were even, you know, thinking about how that might affect us, how that might work. He was already trying to get that stuff put into the CLR. So, you know, in some respects, I would say, no, I don't think there is a category of language that will not run well on the CLR. I mean, I'm sure there will be certain environments, certain things that will run better than others. You know, and I think it's fair to say that a static language will run better in some respects on top of the CLR than a dynamic language will. We have to build a little bit more infrastructure on top of the CLR in order to do some of the dynamic language things. Well, wasn't this what John Lamb was working on, bringing Ruby to the CLR as well, this whole concept of a DLR? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that Ruby supports, for example, is this concept of an open class. 
this is very, very bizarre to people coming from C-sharp and VB, but an open class says, I'm never done, right? Normally, when I finish a declaration, um, you know, the compilers, the compiler, the runtime, et cetera, once they see the last closing curly brace or the last closing end, they go, okay, cool. Now I know what that class is. I can make all kinds of assumptions about its size and the number of members. I can start rearranging the fields in order to get the optimal packing, et cetera, et cetera. In Ruby, classes are never done, right? You never actually are finished. So at any point, you can say, you know what? I'm going to add a couple methods and a couple of fields to an existing class, including those that come out of the Ruby core libraries, which is very powerful and very dangerous all at the same time. Kind of like juggling chainsaws. Those who can do so with skill get a tremendous amount of power and effect out of it. Those who can't do so with skill end up with a lot of, you know, limbs lying around twitching, right? Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a, it's a, the, the Ruby guys have been able to use this to tremendous success and, a lot of the, you know, a lot of people who have sort of experimented with Ruby have said, wow, this is really powerful. This is really cool. Most of those people who are experimenting with Ruby are kind of in that power developer space. You know, those are the ones who are typically your early adopters. There's some concern as to what will happen when we put this in the hands of your, you know, your classic VB, I get here at nine, I go home at five, I don't really care about the language so long as I can find code on Google, cut and paste and make it work, right? I mean, we we all know those guys. We all have worked with those guys before. What happens when we put that kind of tool into their hands? We don't know yet because that's still relatively new. So, you know, there's, there's definitely, I don't want to stand here and, and seem like, you know, I'm gushing about dynamic languages. I think that those are big deal, but it's not so much the dynamic versus static nature of the language that's important. It's more how easily can I express a concept in the fewest lines of code? Because the ACM and other research organizations, they've looked around, they've done these studies, and they go, you know what? Every programmer has about the same number of lines of code in them per day, whether it's a a high-end 20-year senior programmer or a beginning junior programmer. We all write the same number of lines of code per day. It's a question of how productive we are with each one of those lines. And so that's really what we're trying to look for is ways to be more productive with each of those lines of code. Well, that, And so that seems incredibly apparent when you look at something like C++ versus uh, VB.net, where it's just mm-hmm. a lot more lines of code to get something happening in C++. It gets harder for me to buy into that as we get into these new language. Well, we get into something like Ruby versus VB.net. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it seemed like Ruby's strength really was the whole Rails part of generating an awful lot of lines of code. Well, it's not just code gen, right? I mean, let's 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 put that one to, to bed quickly. It's not just about you know Ruby generating. You know, Rails generates scaffolding, and that's what makes Ruby powerful. There's a lot of features in Ruby's dynamic nature in of itself. Uh, and I, I don't want to turn this into a, a Ruby tutorial, but, you know, if people are curious, you know, look up missing underscore method in Ruby because effectively it allows me to define a method that is invoked if you ask to invoke a method on a class that does not exist. And so this is where, for example, 
uh, Ruby is able to use what they call active record. If I create an active record around a database table and I say, give me the first name field or the first name method, Ruby goes, eh, this class, this instance doesn't have one of those. So I'm going to walk up the stack, find the missing method method, which we get off of the, the base Ruby class, and I'm going to invoke it and pass the name of the method as one of the parameters. And now you can handle that and do with it. You could probably even create the method right there, couldn't you? If you wanted to. And I'm not sure it, what Rails does at this point, because they've changed Active Records implementation around a little bit, you know, across the various Rails implementations. But yeah, you could. And there would be some advantages to doing so and so forth. The beautiful thing of it is, I don't have to write piles and piles and piles of code to make this happen. It's, it's like, you know, five lines of code and boom, I'm done. And this is what historically the dynamic languages have been able to offer that, you know, C Sharp and Java have not, is that notion of I can do something very powerful in very few lines of code. And that's not unique to dynamic languages. It's just not something that we've seen a lot in our, you know, imperative languages. And this is where, the, you know, we come back around to the functional language space because the functional languages are able to do a lot of these same kinds of things with very low amounts of ceremony, right? I don't have to sort of wave lots of things at the compiler in order to make stuff work. I mean, we see this in C-sharp today, you know, C-sharp 3 introduced the implicitly typed local variable, right? Var x equals something, right? Some initialized value. The compiler is perfectly capable of figuring out what this X should be, right? If I'm assigning it, if I'm assigning a string to it, X must be a string. If I'm assigning an int to it, X must be an int. And if I change that later, if I try to reassign an int to a implicitly defined string, well, compiler says you can't do that because you defined X to be a string earlier. This is known in the academic community as type inference. And when you carry this throughout the language, F-sharp does this, some other functional languages do this, um, it, it reduces the amount of code you have to write by an incredible amount, by like, you know, 50 to, you know, 50 to 75%, two to three factors of, of code just sort of drop away. And most of that code is really sort of plumbing code. It's not the action code of actually doing something useful, defining variables and, and verifying them and casting their types. It's just a lot of uh, administration. Yeah, well, that's, that's ceremony, right? We have to do a bunch of stuff to make the compiler happy, and it doesn't really actively add to the capability of the code. It, you know, F-sharp, take that as an example, it, it really sort of captures this in a very, very neat expression. In F-sharp, sort of the heart of the language is what we call the let expression. So I say let x equal 5. Sort of reminds you of your very, very early days in basic, doesn't it, Carl? Yes. Reminds me of my early days in college listening to Laurie Anderson. That's what it reminds me of. <laughs> let x equal x, baby. <laughs> there you go. That was a song the of hers. The thing of it is, yeah, see, that's before my time. Um, <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> hey man, I'm all I'm only in my 30s, right? I, anyway, anyway, we won't go there. Um, no, I mean the, the, the let expression is very powerful because I can define, you know, formally 
let says bind an expression or value to an identifier. That's all it says. So I can say let x equals five, or I can say let x equals uh, a function. Yeah. And the compiler figures out that x is now a function type, and it can use that as a function type, and it can reason about that. I mean, if I say let add xy equals x plus y, nowhere in this discussion have I ever said the word int. But because the compiler can look at, you know, where it's used and how it's used, the compiler can figure out, hey, you know, anything that supports addition, any type that supports addition, so strings would also work here, will go ahead and be acceptable here. And fundamentally what I'm doing here is I'm writing a genericized function, but at no point did I get any of these sharp, pointy bracket things that, you know, hurt when you look at them, right? We, we don't like to cuddle up to sharp, pointy things. That's why people get kittens and not porcupines as pets. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Ted, what happens when you put all these things together? Like you put a, a functional language and a dynamic language and a concurrency library and link and plink and, and all these things together in an application. I mean, does, do, do, do things cancel each other out? Do we get, uh, do, does your computer explode or, or do these things work nicely together? Well, remember how I said I had nine PCs? Right, you know, yeah. during the BIOS segment, and and I just tried it, and one of my machines exploded. So now I'm back down to eight PCs. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if these all parts of the same overall solution, right. or are they competing tactics to advance language? Right. Is there any practical limit to the amount of technologies we can stuff into a single application? I guess that's what I'm talking about. Well, you know, I think. Um, I mean, the short answer is I don't know the answer to that question, right? I, I, I certainly haven't well, run across... it's somewhat across, rhetorical anyway. Yeah, I mean, I certainly haven't run across that limit if there is one. What there is, and this is a very real uh, answer, there's limits to the amount of stuff that a programmer can keep in their head, right? I mean, that's back to the, you know, the, the number of lines of code per day. There's only a certain number of things that we can keep straight in our head which is why we ask tools to keep that stuff straight for us. I mean, that's this why. This has been the concern I've had with F Sharp is that I keep getting the sense that F Sharp is not a general purpose language, that I'm, I'm going to be expected to use F Sharp in only certain problems and then C Sharp for the rest. No, I think that's, I think that would be an unfair characterization of F Sharp. I mean, certainly, you know, Don Fine, uh, the guy who created F Sharp is going to say, no, this is a general purpose language. As a matter of fact, you know, I can use F sharp to write traditional plain old business objects and I get a side benefit by doing so of the fact that because F sharp is a functional language, it encourages immutable objects, which means you get a thread safety benefit, blah, blah, blah. Right. I can write WinForms code in F sharp. As a matter of fact, um, the Microsoft launch MSDN, uh, magazine release. Uh, just, I think it's last month, 
Uh, I wrote an article on F-Sharp where I say, look, here is some F-Sharp code popping open a file save as dialog, right? And there's some interesting syntactic constructs there that, you know, reduce the amount of code necessary to open said dialog by, you know, a couple of lines. It's not a, it's not a huge savings, but it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty useful, pretty powerful stuff. If I try to combine F sharp with, you know, P sharp, which is the prologue language and A sharp, which is ADA for .NET. And let's throw in OOK sharp, which is a language where the principal keywords are all based on the sounds an orangutan makes. I mean, you, you, you quickly run into a place where these languages are going to start crowding one another and beating up on each other. And, you know, it's going to be hard to sort of think about where the edges are, but I think we were, you know, practically speaking, programmers haven't really reached that limit yet in terms of, in terms of, of what they can keep straight in their head, particularly if it means that we could sort of relax all of the different library stuff that we have to keep straight in our head, because that's where a lot of our brain power goes right now. You know, you think about a modern .NET application, a .NET 3.5 application, you have to think about WPF, WCF, workflow, info card if you want to try to deal with sort of, you know, authentication and recognition of individuals. Um, you have to think about your objects. You have to think about your database access in some form, whether that's, you know, ADA.net or whether that's link or whatnot. Uh, that could also include perhaps the entity framework or something like in Hibernate. Um, that right there. I mean, that is a huge pile of stuff. Right. No kidding. And, you know, I mean, pity, I mean, think about this for a second. Imagine, Carl, your brother comes over from the Java space into the .NET space and sits down and says, okay, I'm going to sit through training classes until I know everything I need to know in order to work on this platform effectively just to get this application out the door. How much time you got? <laughs> That's what yeah. he's saying. I mean, and that's great for you and me as people who go and train people for a living. But when we're talking, you know, eight weeks of solid, you know, five-day classes before the guy is effective and able to write code on the platform, something's wrong there, right? I mean, I'm not saying that you can be a brain surgeon by attending a five-day class. You can get stuff done in five days. You can get, you can get the fundamentals in five days, certainly. Sure. Sure, the fundamentals, right? I can teach you again, assuming no .NET experience. Let's let's assume some programming experience. You can go from zero to C sharp or zero to VB in five days. Sure, but how much have you talked about, you know, ADO.NET? How much have you talked about WinForms? You can touch on it. You, we've really given them a syntax. You really haven't taught. You can't possibly have talked about architecture enough and about appropriateness of right. technologies right. and when to use where. I mean, you can do a few things, but but you're right. I mean, the the experience is the best teacher. And .NET rocks, of course. <laughs> oh, well, of course, yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, so, Ted, is this renaissance over? Is F-sharp the way? No, 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 no. We're not even close to over. Not even close to over. This is just getting started. I mean, in some respects, you know, the renaissance is is – it's about changing some of some some people's perceptions more than it is sort of identifying what the next big language will be. I don't think there will be another big language, right? Singular. I think what we're approaching 
is what Don refers to as language-oriented programming, where you know we're going to start thinking seriously about the idea of creating custom languages or extending languages in such a way to make it easier for our users to work with. You mean Donald I mean, Trump, right? Uh, Don. No, Donald Syme, but, but oh, you know, Don the Syme. Donald probably has a few opinions on technology because he has opinions on all kinds of things that he's clueless about. Um, I mean, Don, you know, th this notion of language-oriented programming is, is a very interesting and fundamental one. And you mentioned earlier, you know, Lisp and the fact that, you know, when people speak of Lisp, they do so with sort of this little, you know, Reverence. hush catch in their voice. Yeah, exactly. And... You know, one of the things that made Lisp so powerful is the fact that people could define higher level abstractions on top of the core primitive syntax elements of Lisp. So you could build these DSLs in Lisp. I mean, and people were doing that like 20 years ago. And I think that's kind of what we're moving towards. We're moving towards this idea of a compositional language. The idea that we'll define languages in terms of a very basic core set of primitives, and then we'll start building stuff on top of that, that look and feel and act like language constructs, but in fact are really just libraries. I mean, think about C-sharp extension methods, but just sort of go crazy in your head. Think about being able to add new constructs to the language to take certain things off of your hand. I mean, the using constructs, you know, in the show with Jay, you guys talked about your discussion with Chris Sells all the way back yeah. in whatever it was, 2001. Show and his, 10. Yeah, he's ranting and raving over deterministic finalization. I remember that debate because Chris and I were teaching together. It wasn't so much an opinion. It was a, it was a teaching. He really educated us about how garbage collection works and the, the iDisposable interface, which wasn't even an interface then. It was just a method. Yeah. Yeah, mm. well, and... And the funny thing is, you know, those of us who had been teaching Java at Developmentor, I mean, we knew all this. We recognized sure. all of this. And we sort of looked at Chris and going, what are you going on about, dude? This is just the way it is. Live with it, right? You know, we don't even have using in Java. We just put up tri-finally blocks. Right. You know, and we walked uphill both ways to school yeah. in Raging Blizzard. <laughs> Does and he still want reference counting in the framework? Well, you know, he, he and Chris Tavares, uh, Chris Tavares is now working as part of, of the Patterns and Practices team. They did a research implementation on top of Rotor, the, uh, the SSCLI, mm -hmm. and they put in reference counting, and what they discovered was that performance went down by, like, you know, an order of magnitude. I mean, it was just incredible how much overhead just simple reference counting put into the CLR. So I think Chris has kind of abandoned that particular crusade, but I think it's also fair to say that he's not real fond of non-deterministic finalization. I think that's one of those sort of, you know, on the back burner kinds of crusades. You know, if you want to watch Chris Sells explode, which is a scary concept, by the way, because dude is big. Yeah, he's but big. If you, you know, but he's calm if you want for to the watch, most part. He is. But, I mean, you should, when, when he starts ranting, I mean, when he really gets going, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's like a wild man. I mean, you're just kind of, you know, <laughs> taking steps and identifying the nearest exit. Um, yeah, I mean, just, whoa. So you say performance was degraded. Obviously, the memory footprint was better, probably. You didn't have the memory issues, and that's really what it's all about. But 
Um, well, I don't know that memory, the memory footprint was better. What we knew is that we knew exactly when a particular resource would release. Right. So as long as we were talking about, you know, resources other than memory, which turn out to be like 3% of the objects we allocate inside the CLR. So we were taking this huge perf hit in exchange for, you know, something that happened relatively rarely, you know, at least according to the number of lines of code. And the guys at Microsoft on the CLR team went, aha, good research. Thanks for doing that. Here's your check. Now go away because we're not putting this into the CLR. So it was good because if nothing else, it sort of gave us, you know, what would happen if. But, you know, ultimately it turned out that the cost was not worth the benefit. I wonder now if the decisions we made or were made back at the turn of the millennium around these memory models are still right eight, nine years later. It, it seems to me that the memory model of .NET is now getting long in the tube. Especially when you consider multi-core CPUs and the, and the concurrency. concurrency issues. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of things at work here. You know, certainly the concurrency elements are, you know, are a big deal. Right, but this is this is not new. I mean, C plus plus compilers, even before .NET was available, C plus plus compilers were looking for ways to try to optimize memory allocation across multiple threads and and you know make things safer and so forth. And here, I mean, this is again going back to the earlier subject. This is the power of sitting on top of a virtual machine platform. You know, we can change the memory model and programmers, for the most part, won't even know it. Right. right. Again, this is where Brian Getz's book, uh, the Java Concurrency and Practice book, is so, so good, because one of the chapters is, what's a memory model, um, and why do I care? Right. And it turns out that a memory model is very, very important in terms of the languages and the optimizations we can make and so forth. C++ just, just voted in a memory model for the C++ language, which now means they can start to put, you know, threading constructs and so forth into the core libraries that ship with C++. That was something that they were arguing about for years. It turned out uh, back in the 2003 timeframe, I think it was, a gentleman by the name of Bill Pugh discovered a flaw in the Java memory model that even if you wrote Java code correctly, you could still end up with concurrency bugs because of the way the, the compiler and the runtime were able to do these optimizations. And so in Java 5, we fixed it. And most Java programmers don't even know that, don't even care. It just sort of automatically happened when they upgraded from Java 1.4 to Java 5. The same thing could happen in the .NET space. If Microsoft turns around and says, hey, you know what, we have figured out a new and better way to deal with memory management to create a better memory model, we can slide that in. We can make sure that C Sharp and VB and these other languages obey this new memory model because a lot of it has to do with what JITED code does, not even what the language code does. And now programmers all over the world, just by upgrading to .NET 4.0 or 5.0 or whatever, will get the advantage of that new memory model without them having to change their code, which is just huge. Because if I have to try to sit down and teach, you know, uh, like your brother, Jay, or, or some other, you know, programmer who's out there on the front line, if I have to teach him what a memory model is and how he needs to think about his program, 
I mean, you want to watch heads explode, that'll do it right there. Because now we're starting yeah. to approach the practical limits. On top of all the libraries and other stuff they have to keep straight, now they have to learn about a memory model. I mean, that's, that's really hard to do on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, line-by-line code of ba- basis. Yep. You know, and it's just hard. Ted, we're coming down to the end of the show here. Is there any... Uh... Oh, but I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> I know. Your shows do typically run long, but uh, <laughs> it, we try to keep to an hour. But uh, is, are there any resources that we can point people to to let uh, let them know what you're doing and you're up to these days besides tednewer.com, your, your website? Um, well, I mean, one of the things that I'm doing, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, during the bio, I, I teach for Pluralsight. And one of the things I'm, I'm doing for them is I'm actually writing an F sharp course. So if people are interested in, you know, learning about F sharp and so forth, they can check that out. Um, you know, if people are interested in just sort of exploring languages, you know, I talk about different things on my blog, which is blogs.tenure.com. Um, and then there's the usual crop of conferences, you know, um, speaking at TechEd. I'm actually doing a presentation at Tech at Orlando with uh, Luke Hoban, who is the PM of the F-Sharp team. We're going to be talking about F-Sharp and sort of bringing that message out to the masses. Um, you know, but in general, I think, um, you know, if people are interested, what they, what they want to do is they want to start picking up new languages. You know, it, it's interesting because after you've learned the, the first couple learning more becomes easier and easier with every iteration because you go, oh, I've seen this before. And suddenly you just learned Erlang and you pick up another one and you say, oh, this is, this is kind of like X, but it's sort of like Y with a little bit of Z thrown in for good measure. Mm. And voila, you just picked up Haskell. Okay. So really, I think, you know, there's, you know, Google on CLR languages and just, you know, pick one at random. I mean, if you really want to play around with compositional language, there's an interesting language in the .NET space called Nemerly, N-E-M-E-R-L-E, which has this notion of macros on top of the language, which is very powerful. And again, it compiles to CLR bytecode, so you could literally slide it in as part of your, you know, your daily build and ship it into production and start experimenting with it. Nemerly. Sounds good. Yep. Ted, thanks a lot. It's been all it's always good to talk to you and uh and and hear what, what's going on inside your brain. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah, right. you don't want to know everything that's going on in there, but but well, yeah. We like what comes out the mouth though. That's good. Good stuff. <laughs> thanks, Ted. Thanks, guys. Alright, we'll catch you later on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com
Got a transmitter band by the MC 